0: Why Do We Do That?, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I sat down with sociolinguist Dr. Valerie Friedland. Valerie is a professor and former director of graduate studies in the Department of English at the University of Nevada in Reno. She's an expert on the relationship between language and society, and her work has appeared in numerous academic journals. Valerie also speaks and writes widely for a popular audience. Her language blog, Language in the Wild, appears in Psychology Today, and her lecture series, Language and Society, is featured with The Great Courses. She's appeared as a language expert on a variety of media outlets such as CBS News, NPR, and Newsies, The Why, and is regularly featured on podcasts and radio. Her first book for a popular audience is called Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English, and was the topic of our conversation. My discussion with Valerie was an eye-opening journey through the history of some popular American speech patterns. Our talk forced me to challenge some of my hardline stances on correct versus incorrect usage of words and other features of speech. My main takeaway was that there are often very clear and practical reasons for why speech evolves. And that while we may find some informal uses of speech to be irritating or to be diluting proper speech, these shifts do not necessarily result from simple misuse or lack of education, but rather complex social dynamics. Not to mention that we often hypocritically judge others for using certain types of informal speech while completely ignoring our own tendencies that are simply more widely accepted. I'm sure that after listening to our chat, you will think twice about correcting informal speech in your peer group and perhaps examine some of your own tendencies a little bit more closely. Enjoy. Okay, today I am joined by Valerie Friedland. Thank you so much for being on today.
1: Absolutely happy to be here.
0: So the name of your new book is Like Literally Dude, arguing for the good and bad English. I hope hopefully got the right intonation right for that. Uh, It's it's one of those titles that if you just if you just read it very Ah, uh, dispassionately, it wouldn't come across as well. Right. Um, it
1: was that was definitely something I talked about with my editor. You've got to get that right intonation pattern. But I love that people do it in different ways. So I've heard it pronounced good. all sorts of ways, and I think you did great.
0: Good. Uh, so, uh, in the book, you challenge the idea that there is a quote unquote right way to speak English, uh, or, or at least the very least, you establish. Uh, sort of a rich history behind certain features of speech, specifically uh, things like ums and uhs, and in the title, the word like, the word literally. Could you provide some background on this topic in the sense of, you know, whether or not there is a right way to speak English?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, I am a linguist. I study language... From the perspective of how it's structured, the underlying principles that guide language in our minds as speakers from a contemporary perspective, but also historically, are there certain patterns that we see that are continually reemerging over time and in different unrelated languages, um, as well as looking at the history of some of the things that we have in English today or some of the things that we've lost or the history of how languages have diverged over time. So all of those things are in the area of history of language and the science of language. But what's really interesting is despite the fact that there is a huge body of research on that kind of thing. And there are a lot of people like me that study it. The average everyday speaker doesn't have any perspective of what a linguist is or why linguists might be important and what we can contribute to their understanding of language. Instead, what the everyday speaker has is a prescriptivist view of language that they've learned ever since they've been in school. And probably since they've been toddling around their parents' house and um, their parents would correct their grammar instead of him and me are going it, you know, a parent will say he and I, so we've had that messaging our whole lives and it's reinforced in school. And what that does is it sets up this dichotomy between one type of English and everything that's not that type of English, rather than understanding that all these different variations around us, whether I say him and I are going to store, he and I are going to store, whether I say I ain't going to do it versus I am not going to do it, whether I say I didn't do nothing or I'm doing something or I'm doing nothing. That all is from the same underlying principles and processes that gave us the other version. But what's different between them is the social, cultural, and historical context in which they emerged. So I I believe that people believe there's a right way of speaking based on the way they've been brought up. But I think it's more correct to say there's a preferred way that people can speak and a dispreferred way from a social perspective that has. Gained ground because of the social historical way that a English developed and b the speakers that developed it at a certain time and place so let me just sort of add something more concrete to that because I think sometimes that might sound a little esoteric and um, hard to, to grasp but the idea is English has developed from something enormously different over the last 2000 years. If you, if you read Beowulf, which some of us unfortunately had to do in high school, it is not a fun experience and you cannot understand it. It is as foreign as a foreign language because it's essentially German or a Germanic uh, language. We have very little vocabulary that's still around from that time, but we even more have none of the endings, none of the grammatical gender, none, of, very little of the case, none of the free word order that was left at that time. We also have sounds that we've lost and sounds that we've gained. And most of those have come about through the exact same processes that give us these disfavored or dispreferred varieties today. The reason that we have a certain version of English that we think of as as right is because in the 15 to 1600s, English started to come out of the shadow of classic languages and French, which had really been the languages that were written and the languages of literature and the languages of government up to that point. English was a purely vernacular language, meaning it was only spoken by people in casual contexts for everyday life. When you have a language that evolves like that, it changes drastically because these very um, you know, prescriptive pressures to keep language a certain way and the pressure of writing that keeps language a certain way doesn't have the same influence on language. Instead, people use language for connection, for intimacy, for um solidarity, also for anger, right? For, for various types mm-hmm. of, of experiences they share. And language changes to help them do that better. And, and that's really why language changes over time. But by the 1600s, we started writing in English. We started; we were governing in English. There was also a growing belief that English might possibly be a more uh, sort of eloquent and literate language than it had previously become. So people started writing grammar books based on Latin for English. And in by the 17, late 1700s, started having grammar books and dictionaries and usage guides to help people sound more like the elite or the ruling class based on basically noble birth and nothing more than that. And so we tend to forget that that is the reason the standard English we speak today came about. It's not because it was inherently better. It's because richer, more powerful people spoke it. And if you wanted what they had, you needed to learn how to speak like them. Mm-hmm. That may be a good reason. That may be a bad reason, but that is the reason that we think of standard English as standard today.
0: Yeah. I- as I was going through your book, I definitely uh, was able to appreciate the history behind all of these features of speech that we might think are are sort of language cancer, like they're you know they're turning the uh, this beautiful language into this s- sort of slang cesspool. Um, but you know, reading the book gave me this this interesting context. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, you're not advocating for a complete and total wild, wild west of English. There's still a place for grammar and and stuff like that. And I, I I'm curious as to how you feel education should change around language. Are there are there some things that should be inflexible that we need to focus on when when we're educating children, when we're teaching them grammar, uh, and as opposed to you know just saying that slang is bad, which which you know you sort of challenge that idea,
1: right? I think that's a really good question, and it's one that I would say, to be honest, not all linguists agree on. I am. Uh, probably a little more moderate in my opinion on this than some linguists who do feel that really we should not be taking one form as the standard and teaching it in school at all instead they feel like we should embrace diver- diversity and teach a variety of different um, dialects and languages I think for me the way that education should change is to incorporate linguistics in the study of language I think that would make a big difference because part of the problem is that instead of saying look here's a variety that's mostly what we speak in powerful places and in institutions and in educational context so in those ways it's valuable to gain this language access because if you're interested in those things it will give you access right mm-hmm. that yeah. that's that's one idea but then we're actually saying, in day-to-day life is there is one form that's good. And all of these others are mistakes. They're misunderstandings. They're errors. And that's really, there's no grammar to them. That's the claim I hear all the time. There's no grammar to them. Well, there is grammar to them. Every language has a grammar and non-standard languages have just as much grammar as as a standard language. In fact, almost everything that's in a non-standard grammar can be found in another language that we consider very elegant, like French or Spanish, So, multiple negation, for example, which was, was historically part of English as well. So to say that's bad grammar is really a social value that has no, no foundation in linguistic reality. So I think if we can actually dispute those points, if we can teach children to look at language linguistically and then say, look, we're going to teach you a social evaluation that is val- valued in certain contexts. And if you choose to go into those contexts like business, like legal settings, like uh, education, or you are in those settings because you have to be, then this will be a valuable resource for you. But what you say also has a pattern. And, and instead of saying it's wrong, how about we take those non-standard dialects and we actually look at the science and the history behind them. So then you're valuing all of it while also teaching what I think a lot of prescriptivists feel is really valuable going forward. So I'm not saying eradicate yeah. the norms. I'm saying teach them from a linguistic and scientific perspective and understand the social history behind why they exist. And then what you're doing is you're not telling children what you say is bad and wrong and you're, you're uneducated and stupid, which is essentially what we say. We're yeah. saying, look, you have a variety that's at the home, spoken at the home, but in certain contexts, this one is more valued. Here's some access to it. And here's some ways that it compares to your dialect so we can help you understand how to change it if you choose.
0: Yeah. And there's also an emotional piece to how you communicate verbally or in the written word. When I talk to my students about professionalism in their emails for example, I I don't really care about their use of quote unquote proper English, but what I do want to want to achieve is having them understand how certain patterns of speech might make others feel. So if you're a little too Abrupt, or use you know, you respond to only using three or four words. Uh, you don't address people by a, a, a an agreed upon title or something like that. That you're going to create a feeling in another person. And every time you write a message, a text, uh, an email, that you have to expect that there might be some things that you're unaware of that make people feel negative, uh, and and. It seems important to me, at least, that they have some awareness of those consequences.
1: Well, and I think what you're drawing attention to there is the social cultural context of what we say and that we don't always share that same social cultural context. But the fact that we don't share it doesn't mean we shouldn't be sensitive to the fact that another person might have a different sensibility about something. But the other really crucial thing to note here is that when we talk about writing, which is something that you would do in an email or a letter, and we talk about spoken language, they're fundamentally different things. And um, one, you have time, you have time to plan. You have different norms and conventions for use. The history behind writing is much shorter than the history behind spoken language. And the norms that we expect in those two things are quite different. So uh, writing and and speaking have become equated since about the 1800s, where the value of writing and literacy really rose up in prominence. I mean, prior to that, it was assumed that most people weren't literate and it wasn't a big deal. I mean, women that were wealthy weren't literate. So it wasn't something that people necessarily aspire to like they do today. And so as we have raised writing as a really valuable thing for our culture. We have also elevated the written word as the norm by which we want to speak. And that is actually a backwards way to look at the relationship between speaking and writing because speaking has existed for 50,000 years. Writing has existed for five. So clearly we could speak very eloquently and and innovate and move forward and get all sorts of great language diversity without writing ever being there. So I, I mm-hmm. think you do want to separate when you're having a conversation with someone, right. what you get that read from is your, your personal space, your body language, the facial gestures, there's a whole package that you are incorporating into your speech. And so you don't have to do as much in the words you choose, as you do where you you have completely devoid of context, writing. When someone's sending you an email, one of the reasons it can be dangerous to interpret is there is no context from which you can derive c- clues about how yeah. the other person is thinking and processing. So I think it's a critical difference there, and writing is absolutely—it's fundamental to be careful to consider how your interpretation relies on your knowledge of what you're hoping for in that context and your background experience, but you cannot rely that someone on the other end of that email will have that same shared knowledge.
0: So in your book early on, you talk about some very broad forces that tend to drive change in speech over time. You mentioned things like dialects, things like class. Uh, could you, could you, give us an example of how class differences might generate uh, permanent changes in speech
1: sure especially in english class has been probably one of the most fundamental drivers of language change i think you know the important uh, understanding of how languages change over time relies the idea that there are principled ways that our underlying system of language likes to change. So devoid of any social context, our brains have certain preferences and how to structure sentences, how to structure sounds, how to structure syllables and how to put together words. And our mouths are constructed in certain ways that some sounds are more difficult to articulate than others. Some sounds are rarer, meaning they're probably something that is not very articulatory efficient. So languages don't select it as part of their inventory. And there are certain sounds that tend to weaken over time because of the way that they come in contact with other sounds. Those are purely scientific and linguistic reasons. So there's nothing about society in those, but even though we all have the same brains and the same mouths. And so then if all those underlying pressures exist all the time, it should be driving our language to change constantly. It doesn't in the absence of Social interaction, language doesn't tend to change. Right? Mm. Look at Latin, for example, right? What makes those underlying principles and rules happen are social drivers. And what we find is when we look back through history, the same social drivers tend to trigger those underlying rules and principles to come into play and be valued by certain groups more than others so that they actually then get picked up as part of that system. So a great example would be um, the impact of the Vikings on English you know, we we all have all sorts of visions of Vikings and usually it involves horns and weapons, but the reality is while horns and weapons were, well, I don't know what that horns were, but weapons were definitely part of our introduction, our Britain's introduction to Vikings in the eighth and ninth century. In reality, most of the Viking incursions ended up with settlement and farming and integration between the old Norse speakers and the old English speakers. And they lived in day-to-day contexts where they talked a lot to each other, but they didn't have educational systems like we do now. They didn't have governmental systems like we do now. They didn't have beliefs about one system being better than another like we do now. So what happened is these people chatted with each other and the types of changes that Old Norse brought into English were things like new vocabulary for everyday things like uh, skirt and sister and window and our pronouns. They is actually an Old Norse word. But whenever you have two systems that are really close together like that, so Old Norse and Old English are both Germanic languages. So they're basically were were maybe very mutually intelligible languages or very extremely different dialects, sort of like I think you could say Swedish and Norwegian are today. Or I have a friend that speaks German. And when I went to uh, the Netherlands with them, she would joke that Dutch is essentially German with marbles in your mouth. So, you know, she basically was commenting on the fact that these are two separate languages, but they're quite understandable. Same thing with Old Norse and Old English. So, whenever you have that kind of thing, what happens is because you can kind of understand each other, you use the fundamental root words instead of those little endings that might be different on the end. Uh, So, instead of saying, you know, something like them, I'll just use they in every context because we both understand the word they. That's our fundamental shared word. And that has an ending. And so what you do is you lose things like that, right? So the ending starts to drop off. Well, guess what happened by about a thousand in Old English? Those endings started to drop off. I mean, there were other pressures that led to it, but Old Norse, contact with Old Norse and a very similar system was probably a big factor in what we call leveling. But then what happens is class starts to be a big deal because... In, you know the times of the feudal system and even in Middle English, there were those people that were born to wealth, those people that were the feudal lords, and then everybody else that lived with them. The only potential for upward mobility was maybe in a clerical kind of role. If you started to do something with the church, even a commoner might rise to be something a little more valued than simply you know an everyday um, you know worker on a, a feudal plantation type thing. But you had no upward mobility. So language didn't matter. I mean, you weren't going to try to sound like a lord because, first of all, people would laugh at you. You might actually even get bodily harm for it because it would be like you were being disrespectful. And the expectation was you spoke like you were supposed to speak. But the feudal lords and in the um, Norman period, the Anglo-Norman period, the French aristocracy, they didn't even speak English. They spoke French. And it was only the comedy people, the poor people, the low class people that spoke English. So again, with no pressure to be, uh, you know, important or uh, write things or sound like you're part of the aristocracy, language these natural tendencies that make you look for connection or want to make people feel close to you and intimate or the people you talk to every day versus the lords and ladies you have nothing in common with your language starts to shift towards that more likely. And so these percolating pressures, such as getting rid of the endings on our, our nouns and our verbs all together, or starting to use only one form of a verb, like an ed instead of all these other different types of verbal conjugations we used to have, it starts to simplify over time to be less complex in its morphosyntactic patterns, but more complex than perhaps some of the adjectives and adverbs and prepositions we start to put in it. So it's a trade off. It's not like it's becoming more simple, it's just becoming different. And so that's a case where change came about because of class differences fundamental class differences. And so those are just two f- small historical examples. And in modern days, change comes about a lot through ethnicity, right? A lot of the speak that we hear young speak do, you know, sound right. like is actually ethnic varieties influence on English. And this is true both in the United States and in Britain, where multi um, sort of there's a multicultural London English that is widely influenced from West Indian languages. And in, in most urban centers of the United States, African-American English um, and, and heritage varieties of Spanish have deeply impacted the shape of of all people's speech, in, in especially young speakers in those areas. So ethnicity, class, gender, all of those things are really impactful on the changes we see in language.
0: Okay, so i had a thought as you were you're sort of saying that so if 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 we're going to see different classes let's just say uh, the the working class or or lower if we're going to see this tendency for them to develop their own way of speaking and that the, and their way of speaking will be perpetuated by those in-group norms. This is how we speak. We we are not the, uh, we're not the high, high class, the hoity-toity folk. We speak right. exactly. This is how we talk. That, so that can, that's just going to create these natural divides b- between the classes. Um. But so if, if that's going to happen naturally, how do we how do we find a way to, to overcome that obstacle? Because it's one thing if if it's just a different way of speaking and communication doesn't break down. It's a different beast altogether if not only does this uh, the does the lower or upper class have a different way of speaking, but we, we can't even communicate at all.
1: Well and that's actually in the Middle English period often was true right if you were an Anglo-Norman ruler you spoke French and if if the people you're ruling over were not In the aristocracy, they spoke English and we find this to be true in many nation states where the language of the ruling class and the language of the everyday people is different. So it's it's maybe not the best model for those that are in the working class because it does limit upward mobility for them. But in most of those types of situations, usually colonialist nations tend to have that kind of structure there's no upward mobility anyway. So the type of breakdown that you're talking about, the type of non, you know, inability to communicate across class boundaries is only typical of sharply stratified societies that have this kind of Marxist social system where you have the bourgeoisie and the proletariat essentially, right? So you have the the owners and the producers, I think in a Marxist term, you would think of it that way. And then the people that are doing the work and the labor and When you get that kind of class structure, there is not much communication. And um, there's also a lot of antagonism between those groups. And that kind of thing does tend to bolster differences in communication because you're usually denying access to resources and financial uh, development and growth to the ones that don't have the resources to begin with. But that is not typical of most industrial nations. What's typical of most industrial nations is a class model. And that kind of model came in in uh, English in the 1700s with the Industrial Revolution in the 1800s. So that changed the fundamental class structure. So we went from a more feudal system where you had this sharply stratified society so that the ruling class up to about 1500 spoke a pretty substantive different either language or dialect than the lower class but it wasn't that they if they spoke english which by 1400 or so the ruling class was using english it wasn't so much that they were not able to communicate it's simply that there would have been markers of class that were less constrained in the lower class speech and then what we find is as we we Those class divides decrease with the Industrial Revolution and more and more people start to be able to have upward mobility and merchants and retail owners and business owners that were from the lower class started to gain immense amounts of wealth, huge amounts of wealth, owning some of these products that became valuable in the Industrial Revolution their speech was still different than those that had had power before but it wasn't it rarely is the case that when people are communicating they don't understand each other instead it's the case when people are communicating in a class system like this where there are is contact between them that the people in the ruling class don't like the way the people in the working class communicate and that only becomes an issue when the working class is vying for the same resources as the upper class then it starts to chap the upper class's um, (laughs) sensibilities. And that's what happened in the 18th century. As this working class or middle class rose up, they didn't talk like the upper class. It was still intelligible. These differences are not like language change because they're controlled. People have to communicate. Language does not allow itself to change so much that people can't communicate unless those speakers are so completely divided, they don't have contact. But what happened, for example, is working class speakers dropped their H's in Britain. That was a shibboleth of low class behavior. So if I'd say something like I'm happy versus I'm happy, well, someone in the upper class understood what I was saying. They just didn't like it. And that's what gives rise to then that Upward pressure of getting working class speakers or middle class speakers to change their behavior to be more in line with the norms of the upper class. But really, what actually happens more often is that the little things that working class speakers are doing, when they have a lot of extensive contact with upper class speakers, their speech is more likely to influence upper class speak than the other way around. Because the thing that most working class speech has that upper class speech doesn't is community connection empathy, style, fashion, coolness, um, kindness, solidarity, warmth, family, all of those things are things that all of us do. The thing is that working that upper-class speech embodies tend to be sterility, professionalism, competence, um very little room
0: for improvisation right
1: yeah yeah very little room for improvisation and and not qualities that everybody shares necessarily or has access to so you're here you're going with speech forms that everybody wants the things they represent versus speech forms that only a small group of people have access to or interest in so which direction is change going to travel well normally people don't realize this but the vast number of changes that have affected our language over time have been changes coming from the working class to the upper class or the middle class to the upper class, not the other way around. You can count on one hand, the types of things that the upper class have influenced versus almost every massive change that's happened through history has been the working class or the lower class speech affecting the upper class speech. Because also think about who's working in the households, who are people going to school with, right? All of these increased contact with Situations where intimacy and informality and kindness and love and connection are going to be prioritized, and the language of that is everyday speech. So, sorry, that was a long answer, but yeah,
0: question. So, so let's just pivot right into some of the specific examples that you tackle in in your chapters of the book. Uh, I so i I was thinking as you were saying that that dropping the g off of in is that one of those examples that sort of went bottom up?
1: Absolutely, it is. And I think that surprises most people because um, not only did it go bottom up, but our belief about what the right form is, is actually wrong historically. So the I-N-G is a spelling pronunciation of a form that was not the progressive form to begin with. So it's, it's, we're wrong that this is the right form anyway, from a historical perspective, um, because first of all, In Old English, we had two endings. One was inge, I-N-G-E, and one was inde, I-N-D-E. And even though progressive really didn't exist like it does today, I mean, people don't realize progressive is actually a very new form. And in the 18 and early 1900s was considered a very uncouth, vulgar thing to say, to use a progressive on a verb. It wasn't considered a, a good thing to do. So it's a little different in how it, how, I think the perspective of what it did and the purpose it served but there were a few cases of progressives in old english and they used the inde form inde not the inge form so the verb form the verb participle was inde in old english the a noun form was inge which meant was for nouns that had been derived originally from verbs. And the word evening, for example, that is just a noun, right? That ing is from the Old English inge ending. Or if you say, I went to a gathering or he gave me a blessing, both of those were words that got the ing noun ending in Old English and are just nouns for us today. So, you know, we don't think of them as verbs. You can say I'm blessing you and that would be a verb. But in terms of he gave me a blessing, that's just a noun. And so that's actually what inge was. Um, And then what happened is remember how I talked about with old Norse and Anglo Norman influence, all the endings fell off. Well, that's what happened to those two. The endings fell off and they both just became pronounced in. So you would just, and so we actually have letters from, you know, the 1400s and 1500s where they would write things like drinking and beseeching because you wrote, like you pronounced things back then because there wasn't widespread literacy. So that tells us that those endings were actually pronounced I N also, we look at rhyme schemes. So things that people rhymed in poetry and verse, and they would rhyme things like ruin with doing right. So doing was rhyme with ruin, or there are actually pronunciation guides that tell us coughing and coffin should rhyme. So that tells us that the ending was actually in, not ing. And what happened is when spelling and literacy became more widespread in the 1800s, people started saying, oh, look, this is written with a G. We need to have a G on there. And so it's not till the 19th century that we actually see this shift towards a G on this ending that in, in pronunciation and the use of an apostrophe to signal sort of colloquial vulgar speech with the I-N. So it's a great example of something that actually came from this really interesting evolution of people just sort of talking and the ending slow, following all these natural prog- prog- progressions of you know contact and class that made the G and the D drop off. And then they got confused and we adopted the wrong one and now we call it right. So it's a really yeah. fun story I think of how it got to be our ending.
0: Yeah, that's a good example uh, from your book of this trend of it's 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 not just formal versus informal. You you kind of trace that there's that there the story is typically more interesting when you see language change or uh you know, things that we would generally consider bad, quote unquote bad that there's a very very clear reason uh or path for how we end up speaking in a different way you now you have another chapter that uh, uh, was very personal for me uh probably for a lot of listeners as well and that is on uh, filler pauses so we're our ums and uhs, I this is a big big issue for me I have not formally attempted to get rid of my ums and uhs just slowly I've, I've been adding more silences trying to get more comfortable with the silences so i don't have to fill it with the uhs and ums but it, it's something i struggle with if, if i've if i've been able to quit picking my nails this year i, I think I'm, i may end up tackling the ums and uhs a little bit more uh closely but you have a, a chapter where you talk about that. Uh so is, is this a feature of my speech? Is this something that I should be trying to to take out? I I know that there's clearly a preference to have that gone for my listeners and and from people I talk to who who notice that. But generally speaking, what are your thoughts on ums and uhs?
1: Ums and uhs are such a fascinating topic because it sort of what you were just saying, there's so much more interesting research and history behind why we do them and what purpose they serve than people take away when they just, you know, go to a speech class and say, oh, don't say, um, and, uh, and I love that you actually used two really short uhs when you were talking about trying to get rid of us because the funny thing about um and uh, the more you think about them, the harder they are to get rid of. Mm-hmm. But that's because they're actually doing some pretty substantively good things for us. And one thing I, I really want readers to take away is things in language don't tend to happen unless there's a really good reason for them. Are there sometimes when we make mistakes? Sure. Are there things that might get in the way of, one purpose we might have because they're serving a separate purpose, absolutely. And I think that's where I'm um and uh are 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 sort of the the devilers of whether we want them or not. Considering they do good work for us cognitively and socially, but they're so disliked from a social perspective that they can't do that good work and be liked at the same time. And so we have to make a choice. But I'm um gonna uh do a couple of things, and then we'll talk about why people don't like them. They do work of signaling cognitive planning. So when you are starting a sentence, you're much more likely to start it with an um or uh, because your brain is actually working through the syntax of the sentence. It's building that structure. So your neural pathways are firing and the um or uh are signals to a listener that you are doing the work to get that sentence out. So they're sort of just an audible acknowledgement of cognitive processing.
0: I always thought this was was my post-hoc way of explaining my ums. I I, I always explain it as I choose my words carefully. So that is why I have my ums and uhs. I don't like to just, you know, have vomit of, of the brain.
1: That's absolutely true, because what we do find in addition to at the beginning of the words, we also find um, uh, much more likely between before more cognitive, more complex, more difficult, less familiar, less common words. So you are choosing your words carefully. And so a person that chooses the words carefully or is talking in a context where the words may be less familiar to them or less common in their daily speech. So, for example, at work. Or in education, where you're talking about something less familiar than you do at home, when you're talking about taking out the trash, you're going to use um and um more because you're actually searching your brain more deeply for those more complex words because it's not easily accessible. So a word like the we use thousands of times a day. It's not hard to come up with a word like the. A word like um, you know anti-establishment. T- or whatever that big fancy word is that people always quote as the longest word ever is not something you use in everyday speech. So see, I can't even come up with it easily. So those are the types of places where um and uh come up more often. So you're absolutely right that it is an indicator of you being a more careful and complex speaker. The other purpose it serves is by signaling to the listener that you're actually working on something you're about to say and you're not done with your speech, which a silent pause can indicate you are actually giving a communicative signal that's useful for the listener to know not to interrupt you, to know not to jump in, that you're not done with your turn. And if you, um, it actually tells a listener, I'm going to need a longer pause than when you uh. So it's really important that distinction. We find that pauses after, um, are longer than pauses after, uh, which suggests that a speaker actually knows how much, neural pathway lighting up, they're going to have to do to get the right answer. And they're giving a hint to their listener, hey, I'm going to be back in a minute, but it's going to be a bit, or hey, I'm going to be back in a minute and I'll be right back. So really important work, cognitive planning and signaling to a listener that you are going to be back in your conversation. So I don't understand why we take them as such bad signals when they're actually doing good work.
0: Now, in a very broad sense, a couple of the Chapters in your book address features of speech that we tend to see, or at least stereotypically think, there are gender differences. So, for example, the usage of "like" uh, in in the sense of that that stereotypical valley girl voice, like you know, like everything, like everything's different, and everyone uses "like" now, and it's just sort of kind of finds itself in sentences, uh, and you and and so. Could you talk about like and more broadly some examples of features of speech that tend to be uh, different across genders?
1: Sure. Like is probably the most reviled speech feature that I talk about in the book it w- it's hard because there are a number of them people don't like, but definitely like was something I heard the most about when I would go give public talks, people would often come and say, oh my gosh, can you tell me how to stop my daughter from saying like all the time? Or it really drives me crazy when the young people in my office say like all the time. So like clearly is associated with young speech and with female speech. The literature on who actually uses like somewhat supports that, but not entirely. So it is absolutely true that these non-conventional uses of like, so using it as a discourse marker or a quotative verb, for example, are much more prominent among speakers under the age of 30, Uh, but it's increasing. So this is a case of one of those things where young people do it more, but it is actually growing up with them. So as those speakers age up, like is going to be everywhere. So it's not ever going to go. We might as well get used to it. But the the research on gender is a lot less clear that it is true that women use it more. There is certainly belief that that it's true, but if you think about where like historically came from, first of all it's a British feature. It started in this we see evidence of it in the 1700s. Uh ma- often with male speakers and if you look at for example irish english some um, colloquial regional irish english like is everywhere and it's very very prominently used by men in those cases and even in the united states if we look at where it came from in terms of kind of being more of a cool colloquial hip feature think about the beats and the beat generation, like, wow, man. So like was actually a very masculinized feature at that point. And then even think Scooby-Doo when Scooby-Doo came out, who says like shaggy, shaggy yeah. <laughs> right? A male speaker. So this weird transition to have been only a female feature seems to have happened with moon unit Zappa and the Valley girl song, because what happened is like did seem to become very popular with a certain group of young women in Southern California at the era of the 1980s when Muni Zappa wrote that song, the Valley girl song, and that popularized it. And then even though other groups had used it historically, that made it, sort of etched in the american imagination as a valley girl feature and then it never got rid of that association and it is popular with young women but when we look at the research it's actually quite popular with young men too so while it's true that older men and women we find women do use more like than men when you look at the population under 30 that has leveled out and so young men are catching up to women in the use of like so it's not even true mm-hmm. that it's really a female feature anymore
0: so it isn't isn't this also kind of an issue of of how often it's done? I mean, you know, having a drink, having a glass of wine at the end of the night. You know, we're not going to levy a whole whole bunch of judgment on that. Uh, but if you're, there are such thing as alcoholics. Uh, is it fair to say yeah. that we can use that analogy for like as well? Because I will fully admit that I, I use the term like, I, I've, I catch myself using like semi-frequently. I don't know how I would define frequently. Uh, but there are some, some modern examples, you know, I'm, I'm thinking teenagers where it becomes excessive, like almost to the point where you'd call it a tick.
1: Yes, there. I think, you know, it's clear. I think it's also important when we think of um and uh the same way that there are value in these features, and like actually serves a a different, a number of different functions. And so it can seem like there's a lot of them if someone is a user of all those different likes, but each of them actually has a purpose. And it's a pretty impressive purpose, actually, if you unpack them historically and syntactically and pragmatically. It does things. But if someone's using all of them and then they're using them excessively, it can impact how they come across as a speaker and also how they get the message across. And I think the same thing with um and ah, if you're using it really when you're doing deep thinking and you're using it because you're constructing very long sentences, I think that's a very forgivable uh, use of it. But when you instead are a speaker that relies on it so much that it becomes annoying to your listener, I, I do think that then you might have an excessive use problem. But I think what we need to do is separate the feature from the usage pattern. So the feature itself is not a problematic feature. Certain people are not as eloquent speakers as others that doesn't make them bad people, right? Right. It just means that they may not have the same tools from a communicative perspective to rely on. And therefore they rely on ones that we don't tend to like already. And then it becomes incredibly noticeable. So I, I think what we can say is some people might use it excessively and then it can be annoying, but we have to remove our value judgment on the feature and just think, well, maybe we can do some work with that person from a communicative standpoint about decreasing the rate of use. And a lot of times in in young women and young men, they will use something excessively in adolescence, and that will naturally decrease as they get older. So our worries about a 14 year old saying like a lot is probably it's unnecessary to worry that when they're 25, they're going to be using the same amount of like.
0: That makes sense. I I feel much better with that explanation. (laughs) Uh, So the last thing I want to talk about which you address in your book is vocal fry. Uh, I will do my best vocal fry, which sort of sounds like this. Uh, there's a little, it's it's a sound that comes from the back of your throat. I know Kim Kardashian, you mentioned in the book, it, it became, uh, m- made it a uh, front and center, the vocal fry. I've also heard critics of this tendency, of this uh, feature of speech some people will go as so far as to say that it's people that, that they're not actually using their, their authentic voice. And I, I wouldn't go that far. I'm curious as to if you think that there's any credence to that idea that, that they're, they're consciously altering their voice to sound that way.
1: You know, I think the idea of authenticity is really an interesting one uh, in terms of just what we do linguistically anyway, and, and how who gets to decide what's authentic to us. The idea is we're all actors. We're all performers. I mean, that is what we do every day in our life. We None of us speak the same way in every context, no matter whether you're drawing from two languages because you're bilingual and you're speaking one at school and work and the other at home, which is a huge difference. Um, Or you're bi-dialectal and you're speaking a more, you know, accepted standard form at work and a a different dialect at home. Or you're simply an everyday monolingual one dialect person who talks to their parents, with a certain kind of voice and then goes out with their friends drinking and completely shifts to a much more informal (laughs) cussing, kind of more rowdy kind of voice. We all have different voices that display who we are in those moments. So I think the only time you're inauthentic is when you are appropriating a, a dialect as a Put on that isn't your own. So, you know, sometimes we make like men will imitate uh, their wives and they'll put on a high pitch voice or those kinds of things. Those are clearly inauthentic forms of vocal performance. But what we do as speakers is try to use features that have some sort of social meaning that's important to us at that moment. And as we learn novel features over time, it might come across as someone who doesn't listen to those regularly or hurt us in a different context as inauthentic. But I don't think you could claim it's an inauthentic voice if it's someone using that for some sort of social performance that we all do every day in our lives. I think the problem is, again, a lot of times have this has been associated with young women, even though it historically is not a young women's feature in the 1970s. It was widely studied in British speech where it was considered a sign of an aristocratic male figure that was typically well-educated and slightly standoffish. That was sort of the caricature of the person that used vocal fry. And in fact, in British English, vocal fry is still more prevalent in men's voices than women's. In the United States, though, it's associated with young women and it has this sort of um, shifting nature. So you start with one pitch and you end up kind of like this at the end. And so often it comes across when there's also some attitudinal component. So i would be like, I don't know about that. And that's what conveys, I think, this right. idea of inauthenticity, that right. somehow it's it's not just natural voice. Maybe it's not and, even- and it, it can be bored affectation or something right. like that. Right. Uh, I don't think that for the majority of women that use it, that that is actually what they're trying to convey. And it is certainly true that it can convey that, but that's usually in an informal context, talking with friends, not in this situation where you're a news reporter reporting a story, which is where it's widely criticized on um, female reporters are one of the areas where you read the most criticism of vocal fry. I am sure they're not trying to give a bored or disaffected air. Instead, what they're trying to do is, is give a professional low pitch rendition of the voice that gets Listen to on the radio without criticism. Because if a woman uses a high pitch voice on the radio, there is usually a lot of criticism of that. So, what we found is this natural tendency for female broadcasters over time in the last 20, 25 mm-hmm. years to use an increasing amount of vocal fry towards the end of their sentences to sort of give off a professional authority. So, whether that's inauthentic is really in the eyes of the listener, not in the mouth of the speaker, I think.
0: So, my final question What do you? hope that people take away from reading your book?
1: Well, I think a little history uh, and a little linguistics is one thing. I'd love people to start realizing that the way that they've learned about language isn't the only way it, it has a, a some competition in looking at science and history. And I think those things are important. If we're going to talk about what we know about language, we should actually know what we know about language, mm-hmm. but even more, I, I would like just people to come away with a little empathy I don't really expect people to use these features if they're not using them. I don't even expect them to like them. I just want to make clear that the beliefs we have about the people that use these features we don't like are usually not founded in fact. They're not founded in history, but they're more often a social evaluation based on the fact that a lot of change generally begins even the changes we ha- all have now in our speech with the very people we tend to have stereotypes and social prejudices about and that includes lower class speakers that includes ethnic speakers and that includes women and our attitudes towards the speakers then get put on those features even though in reality often what we find is those very features we hate in our in our daughter's speech today become the very features we'll use in the speech of the future. So in just understanding the evolution of language and what's good and bad, I think we just need to have a little more sensitivity to where things come from and why they happen.
0: Well, I highly recommend it. It was a fun read. Again, the title is Like Literally Dude, Uh, arguing for the good and bad English. I even crammed an uh in the middle there, ironically. Uh, Thank you so much for being on today, Valerie Friedland.
1: Absolutely. It was a blast. Thanks for having me.
0: more on Valerie's work, pick up a copy of Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good and Bad English Wherever Books Are Sold. If you enjoy this podcast, please share an episode with two of your friends. Follow the Why Do We Do That Facebook page for updates and additional content. Don't forget to rate and write a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow on Instagram at Why Do We Do That Podcast, or X, formerly known as Twitter, at WDWDTPod. As always, feel free to email me with comments or guest suggestions at whydowedothatpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer, hoping you found some answers to the question, Why Do We Do That?